Hey everybody, what's up and welcome back to the podcast. Today I wanted to talk a little about the early church fathers first, specifically that first 300 years or so, a time period sometimes referred to as the anti-Nicene period, the before the Council of Nicaea fathers, they were, you know, typically a little bit more orthodox because after Nicaea things got a little bit wonky, they got a little bit Catholic, but that first 300 years, it's more or less what we believe uh, today. And I always like to find doctrines that I believe in the early church. Uh, if I don't find a doctrine that I believe in the early church, I consider it kind of a, a red flag sometimes, especially if it's an important doctrine, like the doctrine of salvation. And I never thought to look this up, but um, thanks to some listeners and some other people, I was recommended some uh, great resources. One particular one is a book called um, Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up by a guy named David Berceau, B-E-R-C-O-T. I really encourage you to check that out if you haven't. Uh, he's also got a lot of stuff on YouTube. But he just goes through the writings of the early church and talks about what they believed and just shows the quotes. And it is mind-blowing how much the early church did not believe in anything like what we refer to as once saved, always saved. In fact, they were opposed to similar concepts like that quite vocally, uh, concepts that were coming in um, primarily from Gnosticism, but we'll talk about that in a minute. The idea that the early church did not believe in once saved, always saved is not contested. No one would deny that they believed that, yes, salvation, that is to say justification was by faith, but obedience was required to maintain that salvation. That, for example, one could lose that salvation if they went back to their life of sin, for example, or if they denied Christ. Um, these are all over their writings, so much so that just no one denies it. A good way to illustrate how much no one denies it is by talking about the Reformers. So like John Calvin and Luther, there are quotes from those guys. Now remember, once saved, always saved as we know it sort of comes from John Calvin and Martin Luther. And you would expect when they were trying to, you know, sell this, that they would say, well, the early church believed uh, once saved, always saved, so you should too. But they did not make that argument. In fact, they only went back as far as Augustine, and we'll talk about him in a minute, but they would say that they even there is quotes from them saying, well, we can't go any further back than Augustine because that first 300 years, boy, they did not agree with us at all. So even the ones that are trying their very best to prove once saved, always saved, admit that that first 300 years, they definitely didn't believe it. Now, that's concerning, or it should be concerning to you, a once saved, always saved believer, because it's not a minor doctrine. It's the doctrine of salvation at its core. And you're telling me that that first 300 years, they just were all heretics? So here's something that you also need to know about that. These are guys that could have asked the apostles themselves questions. I mean, Polycarp, who wrote about this and definitely did not believe once saved, always saved, was a disciple of the apostle John for many, many, many years. 
Or Clement of Alexandria was mentioned by Paul in the New Testament, you know, says he's a good guy. Uh, he's also probably one of the overseers in the book of Revelation, one of the churches that didn't have anything bad to say about it. He also did not believe in once saved, always saved very clearly. So if you are a once saved, always saved believer, it is a major intellectual problem. How is it that such a fundamental doctrine could be completely absent for the first 300 years of the church and in fact have them be antagonistic towards the idea in the mouths of the Gnostics. So we know what they believed and taught about the Gnostics because it was considered the big enemy of the day. I mean, you think of the Gnostic Gospels, these fake Gospels of Judas and, and all this stuff. And Gnosticism taught as one of its main characteristics that the flesh was evil, that the flesh was irredeemably evil. And so, for example, they would teach that Jesus didn't come uh, in the flesh, that he was some kind of apparition or ghost during his time on earth because they believed that the flesh was evil. And so Jesus wouldn't have uh, indwelt in human flesh because human flesh is evil. So therefore he was a ghost. That's what the apostle John uh, says or means when he says that they are antichrists who believe that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. In context, he's talking about the false teachings of the Gnostics at that time. This belief about the evil flesh informs a whole lot of other stuff that we kind of think of as Calvinism today. Free will, for example. The early church was very vocal about their opinion on free will. That is to say that they believed that we had it. And the reason they talk so much about free will and actually use that term free will is because they were fighting the Gnostics who believed that we did not have free will. The Gnostics also taught that because the flesh was evil, that we had to sin all the time, that basically we could do nothing but sin. We had no choice in the matter, even after being, you know, quote unquote, saved, we still basically had to sin. Therefore, it must be okay if we sin after we are saved. And it really can't be that big of a deal if there's no other choice because the flesh is evil. So this is one of the reasons we know so much about um, what the early church believed on these issues because they were fighting this particular uh, doctrine of uh, Gnosticism. So the first Christian doctrine having anything to do with once saved, always saved is widely agreed upon to be in the mouth of Augustine. Augustine was a, you know, uh, wrote around the 400s, was a brilliant theologian, probably one of the most influential people in modern Christianity, maybe even more influential than Paul. I mean, in a way, Augustine is the father of two of the biggest movements in, Christ in the Christian world. He basically is the father of what we think of as Catholicism, but ironically, he's also the father of uh, the Protestant Reformation, uh, particularly what we're talking about today, this sort of Calvinism. So how did that happen? Well, he was, when he, he was a Gnostic, actually. He was a, a Manichaean, as sort of a version of Gnosticism when he was saved. At first, he talked a lot like the 300 years of church fathers before him, but over time he became, uh, especially with doctrines like the once saved, always saved doctrine, which was more of his Gnostic roots, and things like the original sin doctrine, which he began to give sort of Christian reasons for, but it was ultimately you know, you could look at it and say, well, that is what he believed when he was a Gnostic too. So I'm not going to try to push that point too hard, but I will say that uh, once saved, always saved was uh, kind of straddling that fence of his Gnostic beliefs with his, uh, Christian reasoning behind it. Now, interestingly, nobody really even believed uh, the once saved, always saved thing at the time. 
So he taught it, he wrote about it, but there's no real evidence that it became something that anybody believed at the time. As I said, the early church absolutely did not believe in once saved, always saved. Interestingly, you know, as you may know, Augustine became sort of the patron patron saint of the Catholic Church, basically. I mean, widely revered as the father of the Catholic Church, and they took most of his writings. I mean, the whole Mariology and infant baptism and all the stuff we think of as Catholicism, they mostly got it from Augustine, but they didn't take the once saved, always saved thing. So Catholics don't believe in once saved, always saved, kind of like the early church didn't believe it. So it kind of got left this doctrine that Augustine taught. No one took it at the time. No one believed it beforehand. Nobody believed it when he said it. And, and for the next thousand years, nobody believed it because the Catholic Church didn't uh, take it on uh, uh, as one of the things that they believed. So it just got left in the box, as it were, once saved, always saved. And it wasn't until Luther. Now, Luther was an Augustinian monk. So he was a person who very much revered Augustine. I, I going back and forth from Augustine, Augustine, forgive me. But um, so he definitely knew Augustine's works. And so did Calvin, by the way. I think Calvin quotes Augustine something like 250 times in his institutes. And they're very clear that they're getting this from Augustine. And they're only going as far back as Augustine. They, as I said, they're not going to go any further than that because it's a big minefield for them because everything that they're teaching is considered heresy before Augustine. Okay, so I just wanted to lay the groundwork there and say that's kind of how we got it. it. It's very broad strokes. I probably missed some details there, but I wanted to at least show you that there is a Gnostic connection before I move into the Sermon on the Mount segment. All right, so let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. This is the largest and most complete teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 in parallel passages. If you have a red letter Bible, it's the section of your Bible that is just wall to wall red. Jesus goes over his teachings on morality and all kinds of issues. Later on in the New Testament, he will expand on most of these things that are introduced here in his uh, most complete and, and likely first sermon as well. I think that it wouldn't be terribly unfair to say at least a portion of the Sermon on the Mount is teaching that his expectations of us in the new covenant are higher than those in the old covenant. In part because, as we will see later, we are going to be given a Holy Spirit to empower us to do more than those in the Old Testament were ever able to do. But, for example, he says that the Old Testament says you shouldn't murder. Well, that's fine and good, but I say that you shouldn't be angry at your brother. Or the Old Covenant says don't uh, 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 commit adultery, I say you shouldn't even be looking at uh, uh, other women with lust in your heart. So he keeps going back to the heart and saying that that's the thing that we're trying to fix here, not just your outward obedience, which is probably what he means when he says things like your righteousness needs to be higher than the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, or you won't see the kingdom of God. I should also say that the early church who we have been talking about, they took all this as literally and as seriously as you would think. So if it says, as it does in the Sermon on the Mount, if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. That's what the early church believed. That's what they believed about forgiveness, that they had to forgive or God would not forgive them. So they write about that. They took it all just at face value. 
Um, so when it says that you shouldn't look at women with lust in your heart or be in danger of the fires of hell, that's what they taught. They taught that, hey, look, you can't be looking at other women uh, with lust in your heart or you will be in danger of the fires of hell. That's the, the early church was characterized, what we would think of it as very prudish. You know, they were very separate from the world. And part of the reason is because they took the Sermon on the Mount exactly how it reads. So let me now talk about what the modern interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount is. And I can sum it up, but like this. Basically, Jesus wasn't being serious. And we know that he wasn't being serious because chapter 548 says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it's kind of like he concludes the sermon by saying, Hey, I'm just kidding. I'm telling you to be perfect here, and that's sort of a wink, wink, nod, nod for you who know that you can't be perfect like your Heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, it means, it's like a, a punchline that says, just kidding about everything I said before. And so the line that people, pastors, will say is, what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is that his standards are really so high that there's nothing that any of us can do to, to measure up to his standards. So think about how different that is. On the one hand, you have, I mean, there's not one single hint of that doctrine that I just said that the hypothetical pastor would say in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, you're thinking, okay, this, this Jesus who uh, I'm calling my master, he says, don't do this stuff. And he's very serious. He says, don't do it or like, you'll go to hell. And um, there's no hint of, I'm just kidding. Don't really take this very seriously at all. And then the early church takes it exactly like that, exactly like it reads. And yet our modern church, they say, oh, it's just, he's just saying, don't really worry about it too much. And the reason my proof text for that is when it says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, which is at the very least a kind of Gnostic interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. Because there is no chance that a person would come to that on their own. They would need to be initiated into the reverse interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount by somebody telling them that that's what that verse means. And so you're saying to yourself, okay, well, what, do you, what does it mean, be perfect? Are we supposed to be perfect? Are you talking about sinless perfection? Literally nobody is talking about sinless perfection. I have yet to come across a theologian that's talking about sinless perfection. Certainly not the early church. But what does perfect mean here? And this is where I was kicking myself because I was thinking, why didn't I just do a word study? Like I was always too scared thinking, oh, I guess perfect means what it does in modern American English. And so Jesus is saying we need to be perfect without any kind of fault here. Um, but it's just a Greek word. You look up this Greek word. It's got many different ways that it's used in the New Testament. Um, just look it up in Strong's mature, brought to its end, finished, mature in Christ, wanting nothing necessary to completeness. Uh, it can mean perfect, that which is perfect, etc. But the most common usage is things like maturity. So 1 Corinthians 2, 6, yet we, do, uh, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, that is to say, perfect. So there are some among them who are perfect, but is, it is translated here as mature. 
Um, it's translated as mature a number of times. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature or perfect. Mature in Christ. Uh, here's an example. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if, if so basically he's saying there are some of you right now in this congregation that are perfect, that have this attitude, that is to say mature in Christ. It's clear that that's what that means in several cases. He's talking about how he wishes and that's what their goal is and that's what they're trying to achieve and how some of them have achieved this maturity or perfection in Christ, this complete, not lacking anything, uh, etc. Wanting nothing necessary to completeness. Jesus said to them, I wish you to be complete. Go If you want to be complete, that is to say perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. That's an interesting one because you know the rich young ruler says, look, I kept all the commandments and says, oh, you want to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is telling people that they can be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And that would be the result of endurance having its work. So just a simple word study would make the springboard line when someone is a false teacher is teaching you about the Sermon on the Mount and they're about to tell you this be ye perfect. What that really means is that we should disregard everything that Jesus is saying. I know it sounds like he's saying that he wants you to do certain things and not do certain things. But what I, your once saved, always saved pastor wants you to know is that all of that stuff is totally optional. You can take what you want, leave other things. He's not being serious here. And the reason is because he says, be ye perfect. All it would take is a word study to say, well, be perfect can also mean be complete in Christ or not lacking anything. And it's not as though that we think that these things that he said are impossible to do. I mean, Job in the Old Testament didn't even have the Holy Spirit and was able to keep his eyes from uh, young women. How are we going to have any excuse on that day if we, who had the Holy Spirit, this great helper, decided that it was too impossible for us, but what we really meant is that we just wanted to do it. 